you. Good morning. We're in 1 Corinthians 15, and of course the background of being in 1 Corinthians 15 are chapters 1 through 14. We've been in a series uh, these uh, number of weeks through the first uh, letter of Corinthians. But there's also the background uh, for us uh, to chapter 15, which is kind of a tender-hearted thing that um, brings us to this chapter as well as it so happens, and that is the death of two dear loved ones uh, in our church, uh, Amber Kutsir and Margie Allen, and it just seems so perfect that we're in 1 Corinthians 15 and we have the opportunity to focus on the heart and the soul of the gospel and our hope and our future together in Christ. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 34. Now, I would remind you, brothers, and that includes sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it, is, it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For death has put all things, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Last week was a hard Sunday, especially just getting that, the news that morning that that uh, Margie had died and God had just taken her by the ham and pulled him into her presence. And I introduced this chapter with the opening thought that because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And that is so true. In fact, sometimes I, I think we, we've lost sight of how different our entire orientation to life and the future and our outlook has changed because of Christ. It's hard for us to go back and know hopelessness when you have hopefulness. Life is worth the living just because he lives, as Bill Gaither wrote and published in that song. In fact, I noticed it was sampled in one of the songs that we sang this morning as we were worshiping the Lord. We live differently because He lives. And we grieve differently. Even our grief is different. As Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. Grief is a process. Grief is not squashed or eliminated. We aren't exempted from grief 
because of our hope, our certainty of the resurrection, our future. It doesn't exempt us from grief because grief is an adjustment to great loss, to absence of someone loved, someone who's so a part of our lives that it can't seem but odd and irregular and wrong when we can't see, be with, touch, laugh together, hear the voices of those whom we love. I can't think of a more powerful testimony to the enemy of death than grief. And it's long, cold, clammy arms try to cling to us, but even so, the sun of our hope and the resurrection through the clouds, through the darkness, eventually begins to penetrate again. And we have behind it all, underneath it all, as our foundation, this assurance, which is so fundamental and central to our faith that it really is the core of the gospel. And as I said last week, and Paul says it as much here in this chapter, the resurrection is the irreducible minimum of our life and our faith in Jesus Christ. It's not an add-on. It's not just a, an accoutrement. It's, it's not just a style approach to things. It is fundamental to God's plan and His ultimate recreation of everything, His correction of everything that has gone wrong, and His fulfillment of all the hopes and dreams and promises of the story of Scripture itself, the story of God itself in the new heavens and new earth. And that's what comes about in the Messiah. As I mentioned last week, Christ is mentioned 13 times in this time. Christ, 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 Christ. And it's not a cuss word. It's a word of great honor and reverence and recognition that it is in Him, His distinctive and unique service unto the Lord, what God is uniquely doing in Him that has been accomplished in His death, in His resurrection, and in His reign even now. And that is something we don't seem to fully understand. And it is the heart of the gospel, says Paul. And he says it here in the opening verses. He's of primary importance. What I also received, this was the the precious core truth handed on from one Christian to another, from the apostles on, as Paul says. And we see these substantive sentences in verses 3, 4, and 5. If you were looking for a lot more, you're going to be disappointed, but do not let the brevity and the succinctness of what is said fool you into thinking that this is not full of meaning and more than we often appreciate. And so, Paul begins in verse 3 with that first of four key statements that Christ died for our sins. Again, Christ, the Messiah. And I want to take just a moment to remind you that the word Christ 
is a Greek word into English. Messiah is a Hebrew word into English. And since Paul's writing and writing to Greek people or people of familiarity and fluency with the Greek language, he uses Christ. But the thought world is the Old Testament Messiah. And all of the promises and dreams of the Old Testament are being fulfilled in the Messiah. He's the hope for one. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And so he says that Christ, not Jesus, not that Jesus isn't powerful enough for us, but it is Jesus who is the Christ that we're talking about. And that is important. That Christ died for our sins. That's the heart of the gospel. And we who grieve appreciate the fact that it is for sin that we suffer death. And now, in dealing with sin, death is being dealt with as, as well. The Messiah, Christ, is our sacrifice which is the story of the Old Testament, a sacrifice for sin. He is our sacrifice and Redeemer. And the second statement in verse 4 stresses not only that Jesus really died when it says that He was buried, but the third statement also that Jesus really has been raised. Just as He really died in that He was buried, so He has really been raised from the dead to life. And that is confirmed by the fourth statement that He appeared to Cephas and the twelve and others as is explained in verses 5 through 7. The key and emphasis of that being that those who knew Jesus best saw him, and it is their testimony to his resurrection that is the proclamation of their life. And Paul chimes in with them. It is theirs and it is mine, says Paul. It is ours. And it is, as he opened in this chapter, it is the very foundation of our faith unless we believed in vain. But that united, unified proclamation, Paul ends by underscoring in verse 11. He adds his testimony of an event out of place with the others, the premature birth of a child, Speaking of himself, a child miscarried or aborted is the exact way the term would be used in general Greek. And Paul uses it of himself. I was a child, a, a miscarriage or an abortion. Well, such children don't usually survive or live. And Paul says, in my case, I live. A rare, if not entirely unusual occurrence, because he says, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his appearance to me, brought me to life in a whole new way. That's his emphasis in verses 9 and 10, and that his very witness to Christ 
represents a life unexpected, a life of God's grace, and that his story really, although not in details, can be our story too. A life unexpected, a new life, a life of grace. Because he lives, we live. But there's more. Not only is it the core of the gospel, Paul wants to emphasize that it's all or nothing in verses 12 through 19. Paul raises up a denial that has been circulating. Some of the Corinthians, some in the church, deny the resurrection of the dead. Now, you might say, why would anyone deny the resurrection of the dead? Well, the resurrection of the dead is not just a survival of death. It's not just the survival of the soul, as it were. Greeks, Romans, weaned on Greek thinking, philosophy, most philosophy of the day, believed that when you die, the body and the soul are separated. Some believe the soul survives. Some felt that it's the bhakti that brings about death. It's, it's the real baggage of life. You know, the soul would be pristine and able to uh, thrive in so many ways if we just didn't have to drag this body around. Uh, it's kind of like having a rotten slot machine, you know, uh, an angel in a rotten slot machine. But Paul, the Bible, insists that the fullness of life is bodily life. And the resurrection of the dead envisages and pronounces and proclaims new bodily life, transform bodily life after the life of the resurrected one, Jesus Christ. And so, it is possible that some who did not deny, and there's no evidence that they denied the death, the past death and resurrection of Jesus, but what they denied was that our future involved the resurrection from the dead we who belong to the Messiah, we who are His. And that's how Paul is using the resurrection of the dead in this passage, as you'll see in a few verses later on. And Paul takes up this denial, and in verses 12 through 29, he deals with it in two ways. Um, in verses 12 through 19, he basically runs this denial to, the, to its absurdist conclusions. And he says, if you accept this, this is, what, this is where your thinking will lead. This is where we end up. And that's absurd. And then, in verses 20 through 28, um, 29, he says, if we affirm the resurrection of the dead, this is what where it leads us. This is where our thinking needs to go. And so, let's look at very quickly verses uh, 12 through 19. Basically, here he's saying it's all or nothing. And it reminded me, I, I love to read uh, Flannery O'Connor's short stories, great American author of the South, uh, Georgia. Um, she wrote a, a rather... Uh, renowned short story called A Good Man is Hard to Find. 
It's a story of a young family and uh, a grandmother who is kind of at the center of things. Uh, it's her son behind the wheel, daughter-in-law and two children, and they're off on, a, on an excursion. And his mom, who wants to take a little side trip to a place that she fondly remembers, but actually her memory isn't too good, and she believes that this is the road that leads there, and uh, she persists, and so they go, and the road gets worse and worse, and they hit a ditch, and the, the car is disabled, and now they're stuck out in the middle of nowhere. When along comes a car, and it's got three hoodlums in, hoodlums in it, the misfit and two of his buddies, and he's been on the lam because he's a murderer, a cold-blooded, stone-cold murderer, and so... And this is a gruesome part of the story, but the misfit and his buddies destroy the grandmother's family. And then it's just her. And she looks into his eyes and she mentions Jesus. And this kind of enrages the misfit at the name of Jesus. And he says, Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead and he shouldn't have done it. He thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do now, but throw everything away and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can. All or nothing. And then this uh, cold-hearted, evil thug says, if I could have believed Jesus rose from the dead, if I had been there, I would have known. And I wouldn't be like I am now. In other words, he didn't have the faith to believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. But if he had, he'd be different. He wouldn't be who he is now. I want you to understand. We all have the faith. Paul's talking about faith here in 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, every day we know by faith. And I'm not just talking about spiritual things. I'm talking about everyday things. Faith is, there's nothing magical about faith. You exercise faith every day. You believe what people tell you every day, and you hadn't been there. You didn't see it made, but you trust their word. You run your lives on the recommendations, the endorsements, the testimonies of others. Here is reliable testimony, Paul says. Don't be fooled. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Romans 8, 9 through 11. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are His children. And we even express Abba Father, which is an intimate term for the most intimate relationship with Father. Daddy is 
thought by many scholars to be akin to the kind of expression that only a child in that unique relationship has the, so to speak, authority or freedom to say, Daddy. And the amazing thing about that, when you think of the Holy Spirit, is that it was through Jesus' ascension and glorification that He sits at the right hand of the Father that we have the Holy Spirit poured out. That the church, this tight, unified, one people, the body of Jesus Christ exists. It breathes the life of the Holy Spirit. And yet how many Christians don't even understand this about who they are, who the, what the church is? They think it's like shopping for soup in the gorged aisle of many choices. Or it's just another social club. We are the people of the resurrected one, the Messiah. And when you think of it in that sense, and, and I, I want to talk about this even more next week, so I hope you'll be back for the last half of this chapter, because Paul's going to take up another question in 35 through 58. But the fact of the… I, we believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus, we call the Christ, the Messiah the one and only Son of God, sent, become human. Think about that. That's, that's unique. It's one of a kind. There's no duplication. He goes to the cross and suffers the sin of the world. He died for our sin, according to the Scriptures. He is raised to newness of life. This is a whole new paradigm, people. This is a whole new existence. And this becomes the work of God in the Messiah that Paul is talking about here. And a new future, not just a restoration, not just a revival under Adam. And that is his emphasis, and that is why in verses 13 and 14, he says, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, Jesus isn't raised from the dead. This is an indissoluble interlocked bond. Our future is ours because he is raised from the dead. And that is the thrust of verses 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And in that process, the pivotal, he, he kind of works the logic backward and forward in, in uh, 13 and 14 and 16 and 17. But in verse 15 is the, the link, the connector. And in that verse, he says, if this isn't the case, then our faith is in vain. And he draws out other implications in verse 18 and in verse 19, saying that the consequences of your thinking, you who deny the resurrection of the dead, if you deny the resurrection of the dead, you deny the resurrection of Jesus. 
And then if you deny the resurrection of the dead and deny the resurrection of Jesus, then you deny more than you realize. And they're quite drastic. In verse 18, he says, those who have died have perished. That's a... It all depends on the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus requires the resurrection of the dead because that's what he came to do. And verse 19, he says, those who suffer and struggle for the gospel, that is, we who live as the people of the Messiah, the Easter people, it's all in vain. So Paul says, in effect, in an upside-down sort of way to show them the absurdity of the claim or the denial, he says, in fact, don't be so absurd. We are, in fact, witnesses of the truth. Our preaching is true. Our faith is firmly rooted. Our sin is erased, and we are made right with God for eternity. For, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and we will follow him in the resurrection of the dead. We will be transformed, re-embodied for the new heavens and the new earth which is something that Paul says again in various places. 3.20, Philippians 3.20 and 21. Our lowly bodies will be transformed and conformed to His glorious body. And then he talks about the reign of the risen Messiah in 20 through 28. He calls Jesus in verse 20 the firstfruits which is a very interesting expression because that was common, not just in the Bible, but outside the Bible. The first fruits was the first cut of the harvest. And when you brought in that first cut, you could see the quality and, in a sense, a guarantee of the whole harvest. That's who Jesus is. Jesus, the Messiah. And then in verse uh, 21 and 22, Paul makes the point that what God has done in the Messiah is, in a sense, a rectification, a correction, a remaking, a fix-it of everything in the Old Testament in sweeping terms. Because he goes on to say Adam's failure and Israel's failure didn't just uh, bring about God giving them a new job description as though he was going to rewrite their tasks. No, he sends the Messiah to fulfill what Adam failed to do and fulfill the vocation of Israel and act in his people's place. He is not only Messiah and Lord, but He is the representative figure of a new humanity, a new work of God. And so, Paul in verse 23 talks about the order of events and then the restoration of order. In verses 20 through 25, he's talking about the order of events, and in 26 through 28, order restored. Two different notions of order, one dealing with sequence and one having to do with it being refashioned and made whole and complete. The eventual order of things he talks about in verses 26 through 28, and especially God is going to deal with the final enemy, death. 
And I, for many of us in our church family, this has been a hard month. It really has. The crazy thing about grief is um, it's different for each and every person. And sometimes you, you just realize you're out of whack, but you can't qu- kind of quite put your finger on, on, on why things are, are a bit out of whack. Sometimes I, I mention this because sometimes I hear people say, death doesn't really matter. You know? I've heard even people say, I'm fine with death. Just the end of it. But to say that death isn't the enemy, I, I think that's, that's just boisterous arrogance. When you lose a loved one, when you come face to face with death, you realize that death overturns, is the enemy of God's goodness, His beauty, the power of God's good creation. It is the anti-creation. And the point of the resurrection is the defeat of death. And that's why when we read in verse 25 of the sequence, the Messiah is going to defeat every enemy, every opponent of his creation, of his plan, of his purposes, which is all good, which is the beauty and goodness of creation. And the Messiah is going to do this. And when that is done, he says, then, then will come the end. Then will be the full resurrection of the dead and the beginning of the new heavens and new earth. And then Jesus will submit his reign, the kingdom, to the kingdom of God. And it says, God will be all in all. All in all. That is a profound statement because I believe that has to do with the new heavens and new earth. And it'll be different. It's going to be all under God, all integrated, and it will be bodily transformed life. And it's going to be a beautiful life in when, where those in Christ are going to be restored. And it's going to be a wonderful life. Just drop all of this kind of bodiless thinking, playing harps on clouds, and that's just baloney. Who can get jacked up about that? Not me. But when I think of the sweet fellowship that we experience in the Spirit, that's going to be manifold because it will be Spirit-driven life. And we'll talk more about that next week. I don't want to get into that now. But I do want to help you see something that's very important. He keeps talking about the reign of the Messiah. By the way, verse 25 is about as good a definition of what Paul means when he calls Jesus the Messiah as any you're going to read. Because there we see Jesus reigning already. Already he is Lord. Already he is King. And he is in the process, and he will complete 
the subjugation. That's why it mentions under his feet. Now, it draws that expression a couple of times here. The first it draws it from Psalm 110, verse 1, where it speaks of the Davidic king. So it is a messianic expression. And early Christians often referred to this to identify Jesus as the Messiah. Paul invokes that here in relation to Jesus' role and responsibility as the Messiah, even now initiated, inaugurated, and being completed upon the resurrection of Jesus. But then he mentions again, just a little bit later on, Psalm 8, verse 6. He mentions that in verse 27. And in Psalm 8, verse 6, the psalmist is not talking about the Messiah the psalmist is talking about the human being, the epitome of God's human creation. Human beings. And it talks about this role of being under God and over the world, not just of the Messiah, but of the resurrection of the dead, that is, human beings raised and outfitted for this spirit-driven, this resurrection, this bodily existence that is ours in the Messiah. And the reason I mention Psalm 110.1 and Psalm 8.6 is that goes back, in a sense, to Genesis and draws themes from Genesis, the fall, and what God really intended for, for His human creation in relation to the creation, and it pulls on themes of his history with Israel and the kings, and now then the Messiah fulfilling that kingship and what God intended to do for his people, and it fulfills what he says in Daniel chapter 2, verses 44, 40, chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, chapter 7, verse 14 and 27, it all comes together in the Messiah. I know that's a lot to absorb. But he says as much in more simple language or concise language in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. He says, In Christ is made known to us the mystery of God's will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in the Messiah as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things in earth. So after addressing the denial in this way, not only it's double or nothing, and the reign of Christ, he says, listen, it is the future that is ours in the resurrection of Christ. We, the resurrected of the dead, it is this future that gives meaning to our lives today. And this he stresses in verses 29 through 34. I'm going to try to summarize, but I know everybody wants to know, what does it mean when he talks about baptism of the dead? And Paul says, why do we even baptize the dead if, he, if the dead are not raised? 
And he says, why do we suffer? And he talks rather extensively about the kinds of struggles, challenges, suffering that they face to tell the world about Jesus Christ and his resurrection and the grace of God in the gospel. He says, why do we do that? Why do we, like gladiators, face death daily? First of all, the baptism of the dead. Some think that some Christians had died before they were baptized. Some think, and I could, it's, it's possible, that they baptized others, surrogates, the living, in the name of the person who had died to identify the person who had died as a believer in Christ because it was true of who they were and they just died before they could be baptized. That's one possibility. I think it more likely that when it says baptism for the sake of the dead, I think it is the idea that people who have lost loved ones in Christ hear the gospel and they want what the dead in Christ, those who have died in Christ, have a future in the resurrection. And so they are baptized for the sake of those who have died. In other words, my loved one who was a Christian, I want a future like they have. And so that's my, I think that's the easiest explanation for the notion of baptism for the sake of the dead. They're brought to Christ and they're baptized in Christ. And really, baptism, apart from the expression for the sake of the dead, baptism is the enactment, the, if you will, tangible enactment of our death and resurrection. It is the one true time that we can really celebrate death because it's a death in Christ unto life. And so Paul says, why do we do that? Why do we suffer as we do if there is no resurrection of the dead? He says, it's as though some have no knowledge of God. And that's why he warns bad company can corrupt even the, most, uh, uh, the, the best virtue. In this whole series, there's the backdrop of our culture and how it influences us. Do you know that there are more Bibles than ever before in history available to people? The access, the availability, dirt cheap. You can get it digital, digitally. You can get it free. You can get a number of versions you want. And yet there is probably, this is anecdotal, but the, the statistics seem to bear it out. There's more illiteracy of God than ever before. And we're just drowning, so to speak, in the Word, but we don't know it. We don't read it. We don't let it saturate our, our hearts and our lives. You know, we want, we want to hear certain verses depending on our moods, but we're not letting the worldview of the Word of God alter the way we operate and manage our lives in Christ day to day. I want to encourage you to get into the Word because it will arm you with the right heart and outlook so that when you uh, watch television or you're with your friends and they say things much like the person represented in verse 12, says uh, there is no resurrection of the dead, you'll have 
the inner strength, the rooting to say, that's just, uh, you don't know God as I know God. You don't know his word as I know his word. You don't know what he's done in Christ as I know he's done in Christ. The world offers promises full of emptiness. The resurrection offers emptiness full of promise. Empty cross, empty tomb, empty grave clothes, all full of promise. It's only because of the resurrection that we talk about strength being made perfect in weakness, foolish things confounding the wise, the meek inheriting the earth, the poor in spirit getting the kingdom of God. I certainly wouldn't be talking about dying in order to live if it weren't for the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. God seems to favor paradox to our worldly way of thinking, ways that confound our ways. It shouldn't surprise us if we get to know God, know Him who sent His Son, His Messiah, His servant King to save the world by letting it kill Him, but doing for a purpose that which is definitively confirmed in the resurrection of Jesus. And to save through suffering, and to gain by losing, and to redeem by giving up, and to conquer by surrender. These are the ways that seem so paradoxical to us, but have this uh, amazing intuitive wisdom for those of us who know the Christ who is raised from the dead, and that is ours. That is why we celebrate this bread and this cup. There would be no purpose in this without the resurrection. And yet, the bread reflects his death for our sins. And the cup, the new covenant, a new future, a new relationship with God. This is what we remember. Heavenly Father, this morning as we come before you to take your bread and your cup, we remember we pray that these truths might seep into our soul in a way that will arm us with the truth and the reality of the new life, the work of your Spirit, the future that is ours, and more. We are so thankful that in this bread and this cup, we are reminded and thus we remember that our sin has no hold on us anymore. And in this cup, you have that hold. And that is what we celebrate. We pray this in the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.